Over 85% of innovation leaders report that fear often or always holds back innovation. And only 25% of organizations really understand this fear. And fewer than 11% are doing anything about it. So to understand how leading innovators manifest the, these feelings that actually really recognize the fear and counter it, we've actually looked at some of the practices that they do. From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Laura Furstenthal, a senior partner in our San Francisco office, offering an example of what it means to create a culture of innovation. Today, we will discuss the people side of innovation and how to overcome some of the common psychological barriers that often stifle innovation efforts. Laura is one of the leaders in our innovation practice, and she's joined by two of her colleagues. Alex Morris is a partner in our Toronto office. And Eric Roth is a senior partner in our Stamford, Connecticut office and the former global leader of our innovation practice. They're also the authors of a recent article on this topic titled Fear Factor, Overcoming Human Barriers to Innovation, which you can easily find on McKinsey.com. Laura, Alex, Eric, welcome to the podcast. Alex, why don't you start us off with some definitions? What do you mean by barriers to innovation and specifically human barriers? One way we think about the barriers to innovation is to think about them as some plumbing issues. And a lot of organizations have these innovation plumbing issues. And what we mean by plumbing issues is things like they lack an innovation strategy or they lack an approach to managing innovation projects as a portfolio, or they lack a disciplined capital allocation process around innovation or they lack a disciplined process to actually execute and scale ideas and opportunities. There's all kinds of plumbing issues and they're hard challenges and we regularly work with our clients on these challenges. But there's also another side, another set of barriers to innovation and those are the the people barriers. So there's the plumbing barriers and the people barriers. And these are things like the things that get in the way that relate to norms, behaviors, mindsets, habits, even language in an organization. These are all the people side of innovation that can be real serious challenges. And Sean, we're excited to share a bunch of new research uh, with everybody today on these barriers and some thoughts on what organizations can do to start to overcome them. And your article calls these people barriers in innovation fear factors. So where does that fear come from? Maybe just to make this a little more real, I can give you an example. Our research shows that leadership too infrequently asks for innovation. They want it, but they don't ask for it and they execute it poorly. What happens next? Well, it's the story of employee apathy and frustration. They've heard this request before. They've seen how this movie plays out and they're not energized to do the work of innovation because they feel like opportunities and new possibilities are regularly smothered. And then what happens next? It's a story of fear. Fear on management's part to take on new ideas, things that are different from orthodoxy uh, in the industry or at the company. And then fear on employees' part, fear of reprisal, fear of criticism. And these all pose and create barriers ultimately to innovation and growth and staying relevant 
as an organization in the world to our stakeholders, to our shareholders, to our customers. And they can often result in a lack of ideas, uh, a, a lack of experimentation, a lack of growth, and a lack on management part to actually invest in what matters and the long-term success of companies. These sound like some pretty significant barriers indeed. Given the first step to removing them is actually identifying them, can you share some of the most common archetypes of barriers to look out for and how they arise? I think it's really important that organizations and especially leaders understand if there are any of these invisible rules that get in the way of innovation. Rules like stick with what the organization's always done, stick with industry convention, stick to your lane, um, stick with your workflow, stick with existing processes, stick with bureaucracy, stay in your silo. Don't work across the organization, for example. So it starts with understanding the implicit. And, and if I could add a little bit um, to this point, is that often these implicit barriers become explicit as systems and rewards approaches and even the business model itself firm up as an organization and a company experiences success by adhering to these both implicit ways of working. And so then when you go to then change, it's very difficult because what may have breeded success may be exactly what's getting in the way of innovation and causing the fear and, and you know, creating a higher barrier to overcome the fear of, of making, you know, doing something different. Although at the same time, and, and, and Laura and I have been tracking this for years, we, one of our favorite statistics is, you know, almost, almost 80 or 90% of executives will tell us that innovation is a top priority, but only 6% are satisfied with their performance. Uh, we've watched that number not change for, I think, now nine years. And so the notion that there's frustration and anxiety uh, makes perfect sense because that's what executives have been telling us for a long time. It's really interesting that those two numbers have been so consistent for so long. Um, Alex made the distinction between the people and the plumbing. How do you see those two things combining to pro produce this level of frustration and anxiety that you were referring to, Eric? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've said this many, many times. Innovation at the end of the day is a resource allocation problem. And when your strategy and your portfolio are set up to orient resources, both people and funds, towards the core of the business and incremental things, uh, it creates a real problem to organizations going after the best opportunities, which oftentimes are not always in the core. And so the strategy and portfolio structure and processes and ways of working around it often are a huge barrier that reinforce this notion of, well, I'm afraid to step out. Um, you know, making sure that uh, there are people are comfortable. You know, in the end of the day, innovation is, is is a little bit of a confidence building approach, right? The more steps you take, you should be more confident that you're onto something good, and the value propositions that you're working with will win in the marketplace. Well, if you are really focused on the near term, and your ideas are not rooted in a really valuable problem to solve for a customer, a frustration or pain point that's that's identifiable then your ability to have confidence behind that distinctive value proposition also is weaker and which will also create um, a barrier towards taking risks and, and being confident behind 
um, some of the things that are inside your portfolio. And then, you know, we often say companies just, you know, um, hurt themselves in the process of taking things to market. They have something great, but they don't mobilize. Uh, they don't really have a process that's accelerating things to market and ensuring they get to scale. And part of that is connected to this last part of mobilizing your organization end-to-end to, rise, to remove barriers, to work with your customers differently, to actually ensure that your channel, your assets, all the capabilities are set up to maximize the potential of a given idea and get it to market at speed. Um, many times we say, we hear, oh, we piloted in one market, but it never really got to the second market or never really got to the next customer. And the question always is, did you plan to get it there from the start or were you treating the idea like a Petri dish and then deciding whether or not it was worthwhile scaling? And it's often the latter. And then, of course, the incentives, the other organizational things that reinforce, as I mentioned earlier, the ways of working of today versus the things that might be required to innovate for tomorrow, those get in the way as well. And you wrap all that up and then put it back under what Alex was describing. It creates this anxiety, this frustration that you all are calling out of, well, what if I get it wrong? What if I'm not correct? What if I don't have that confidence? And as I said, innovation, a lot of it is a confidence building process. And if you don't have that confidence, then the fear factors overcome the decision-making. So those processes and steps have to be in place to build confidence and pursue these pathways to market. Laura, let's, let's turn to you. What, what did this new research tell you about the people and culture side of innovation? Having spoken to thousands of organizations over time, we do believe that culture is a really important part of innovation. So our research across hundreds of organizations shows that leading innovators, those that outperform at driving the creation of economic profit by delivering new products, new services, and new business models, have feelings, or as Alex would call them based on his plumbing analogy, smells, that reek of positive energy, things like creativity, excitement, and optimism. Whereas the average, and frankly, the low performers, they have the diametrically opposed set of feelings on at least several dimensions. And while they still focus on creativity, and in fact, often people mistake innovation and creativity as the same thing, they are not. (laughs) One is actually delivering economic profit from that creativity. The other is having a a sense that it is important. While these average and low performers still focus on creativity, the the smells at their organization are more focused on anxiety and frustration. So lagging innovators really lack the joy and inspiration and courage that we were hearing about at leading innovators. So we actually took this and said, you know, what is it that is causing this? And many of these negative feelings that we hear inside of most innovative organizations um, are actually really quantifiable. Over 85% of innovation leaders report that fear often or always holds back innovation. And only 25% of organizations really understand this fear. And fewer than 11% are doing anything about it. So to understand how leading innovators recognize the fear and counter it, we've actually looked at some of the practices that they do. And examples of those things can be really simple. Uh, One organization always hyphenates the word mistakes as M-I-S dash T-A-K-E-S. In other words, take again, right? So 
they actually have culturally inculcated the idea that there is no such thing as a mistake that you can't learn from, and that in fact, those are just part of the process. Another leader starts all big meetings with a slide that says, it's easier to edit than to author. Before we iterate, please thank the authors. And it sets a tone at the beginning of each of those conversations that yes, we may have criticism that we're gonna to bring to the ideas that are coming into the room, but the most important thing is for someone to take the pen and start authoring. And, and finally, another example that I just love, another organization has eliminated the word pilot from their language completely, and instead they've replaced it with the word pioneer. And it may seem subtle, but the point is that we are not doing lots of things just to try, and when they fail, we're gonna call them failures. We are stepping in a direction with the full intention to keep going forward. And in fact, when we use that language, they've found they much more often find ways to iterate and succeed beyond the, the, initial, the initial trial. A lot of these examples bring a lightness and like a bit of humor to the language around innovation. Do you find that introducing that bit of playfulness helps reduce some of the anxiety that people feel when they're thinking about innovation? A hundred percent, Sean. You know, I think the broader category is fun. And when we look at companies and their values, again, those that tend to be more innovative have a number of values, often explicit and articulated. And it's not uncommon to see fun appear amongst those values, that we're here to do work because it's joyful. And that, that's a way of taking some of the steam, some of the pressure and the anxiety out of the work and out of the important work of innovation in particular. If you can lower the temperature and take work a little less seriously, that can really change the cultural environment. And that doesn't mean we're being unserious about work. It means that we recognize that fun can produce more productive and better work. I do. I do want to say though, just there's a hidden hidden anchor. You don't want fun and humor to deflect, and so there's a lot of research on psychological safety and creating environments where humility, empathy, uh, and respect for one another. It's a little embedded in some of the examples Laura shared. Is also critically important because what you wouldn't want is an organization to mask the reality of what's going on with a veneer of fun and entertainment. And we've seen that we kind of joke around and call innovation kabuki theater, you know, where where there is where there's contests and all sorts of things which generate excitement, but don't really fundamentally shift the the gravitational pull of the organization. And so I would balance that. It doesn't mean that isn't important. I would balance it with the with the empathy, the humility, the honest conversations, the change in language, the dialogue to create the psychological safety for people to participate. Yeah. And just one last thought on that. There are some real mechanisms you can put into your teams every day that, to your point, Eric, bring that fun, levity, and personalization to the situation without diffusing the focus on objectives. So great ones include things like exercises at the beginning of getting to know each other when you're storming and forming as a team where you actually learn from each other, right? And draw pictures as if you're in kindergarten <laughs> to say like, what is the craziest thing I did over the last week? And you draw a picture of it. Putting up gratitude walls in the rooms and having everybody leave a gratitude for at least one person, right? Those kind of things can actually bring a lot of this positive energy without diluting the focus on impact. 
So speaking of impact, how can companies engender this creative drive to take risks and bring forward new ideas, but also balance that with keeping employees focused on driving the existing business and making sure that they're actually delivering for their core existing customers? We often hear organizations that say, I'm being held back because I'm in a highly regulated space or, you know, I, I can't, if I disrupt my current customers, I'll lose so much of the core, I can't do it. That's where you actually have to learn to live in a two-speed world. A, we are now living in a world of co-opetition and you, you may have to think about your supply chain, your competitors and others differently. But B, you still do need to protect the core. And by the way, everybody in your organization does not need to be innovating every day. So having a set of folks who are critically focused on continuing the core business and making that work, and then ensuring that your folks who are innovating may have a separate set of guardrails that they can work by, right? They may be innovating with a small subset of customers where it's okay to actually try new things. And those are pre-vetted. They may have approval processes that are much abbreviated because what they are doing is actually not being spread globally, right, yet. And so I, I think having that ability to actually put a different set of guardrails, put a different set of objectives into the hands of a subset of people and recognizing that not everyone is living by those same uh, directives is actually really important. Uh, the end to that is that you've got to have a green box, right? What is the green box? For those of you who haven't heard about it, you need to be explicit about the resources that will be dedicated, dedicated and or focused on innovation for driving a certain amount of value under a certain amount of time with a certain risk level that's appropriate for the strategy of the organization. And if you can't, as Laura was alluding to, innovation is everyone's job at one level, but it really isn't at another. And making sure that clarity as to who needs to do what differently uh, and how, most importantly, how they're going to do it differently is so important because the number of times we hear CEOs and executives talk about innovation, everyone goes, yay. And then nothing happens and everyone goes back to their desk and kind of looks around and goes, well, I guess I should just get do what I'm doing every day because no one taught me how to do anything differently. And then people come back and say, but, but innovate. This is where the fear comes in. Because if I'm going to innovate, then I'm not doing what I'm supposed to in the core and no one's differentiated the core of the business and what makes that successful versus the new stuff um, and how we're going to get it done sufficiently. So therefore, you get all these disconnects. Whether you have a two-speed system or otherwise, you really need to create that differentiation, that specificity on how are we going to get innovation done. Because the more detail it's work that's been done on the how, the less the fear factor will creep into play. So what role does the CEO or the CHRO play in helping what may be a conservative organization become more innovation-oriented and more accepting of mistakes, as you earlier put it, Laura? I mean, the leadership team plays a critical role. So how are you setting an aspiration for your organization that is clear, to Eric's point, it's quantifiable, it actually cascades in terms of the targets and the directives and the objectives that folks have? And interestingly, the top team can then set the tone in two ways. One, they have to be very clear on that aspiration. You know, when we hear John F. Kennedy's to the moon and back in the next 10 years, marshalling the greatest resources of the United States, in other words, create NASA, we all get it. And by the way, the janitor at NASA, when you ask him or her what their job is, will say, I'm putting a man on the moon. And hopefully they say putting a woman on the moon too. But I think the important part here is having the clarity of aspiration, having everybody understand what they're headed towards, and then setting that tone 
back to these signals of mistakes, back to, you know, Andy Jassy's, we're willing to be misunderstood for long periods of time because we believe in where we're going, right? All of these sort of air cover type things that you can hand over to the whole organization to make it feel welcome to do what they're doing, to make it feel safe. I think those are the two most important roles of the executive team. Get that aspiration clear and then make sure people feel comfortable living into it. If the executive team is not fully committed to choosing to grow and innovate, it will not happen. Alignment is different than commitment. Everyone nodding and saying, sure, commitment is I'm willing to take people and money out of my organization and put it towards the goal. That's a really important point. Thank you. And, and so let's now dive into these barriers to innovation. Alex, can you take us through the fear factors? Sean, let's dive into some of the specific fears that we have been learning about through our research that are really strong and present on the ground in so many organizations. And it's not just kind of fear generally. Fear manifests in really particular ways and in these three ways especially. One is around fear of negative impact on career, and that holds people back from innovating, even trying innovation. Fear of uncertain outcomes from their actual work of innovation, that holds people back from innovating. And importantly, fear of criticism. And these three fears are the biggest fears that we're seeing amongst you know all fears. Fear is, is very personal, it's complex, but the pattern we see is that these three are the most pervasive and they appear in average innovators significantly more than they do in leading innovators. Fear of negative impact on career, for example, we hear that folks are feeling that and experiencing that 3.6 times more often and strongly in average companies or average innovation companies compared to leading innovators. So, you know, these are really big differences between an average company and a leading performer. And um, again, it goes to the question of what's happening inside your organization? Is your leadership aware of the on the ground experience of your innovation teams and how they're feeling and how that's impacting their work? This, this notion of low fear cultures versus high fear cultures is fascinating. What, what are some of the other differences in the innovation performance of companies they'd either exhibited low fear cultures or high fear cultures. So first of all, what's the split? And of course, it's on a spectrum. But when we just think about broadly, these two different kinds of innovation culture archetypes, we see about 30% of companies have these lower fear innovation culture environments. And 70% of companies have these higher fear innovation culture environments. I think what's really interesting is what share of those companies tend to be leading innovators. And two things come to mind here. One is that when we look at fear less innovation cultures, almost six in 10 of those companies are top quartile innovators. When we look at fear more companies, companies that have higher fear innovation environments, only one in 10 about one in 10 companies are innovation leaders. So that tells you that you can actually have a pretty high fear environment and still have the chance of being an innovation leader. It's just the odds aren't as good. And in our research, we, we, we did hear this. 
we heard stories of innovation leaders saying that every week they had to go into their CEO's office and give them a big, bold idea. And they either got praised, were their words, or destroyed. And that was their weekly experience. And a pattern we've seen in these high fear environments is there's actually significantly higher turnover. It's maybe not a surprise, but it is possible to be an innovation leader in one of these more high fear environments. It just seems less likely. Indeed, I'd imagine that folks uh, were afraid not to produce, uh, but didn't really enjoy it as much as those in the low fear environments. What, what specific things do those low fear companies do to create and support cultures where people uh, where people fear less, if you will. What we found is a pattern where there are five cultural elements that most follow, and they do really relate to the CEO and top team. Culture is very much a top-down driven tool to create the environment and context to fuel or hold back innovation. And just like Eric said, it starts with commitment, this belief. Does the CEO and top team authentically hold innovation as a core value? Do they champion innovation on repeat? Importantly, do they signal and symbolize that innovation is a priority? We see that leading innovators score three times higher than lagging and average innovators on whether the CEO and top team actually authentically hold innovation as a, a value and are committed to it. Around championing innovation on repeat and really using storytelling to communicate innovation as a priority, we see four times, four and a half times higher amongst leading innovators. Number three is super interesting. Do they signal and symbolize that innovation is a priority? Because this is lower overall but still 11 times higher amongst leading innovators really understanding and using the power of symbols to show employees that innovation is important. Number four, leaders actually embracing the behaviors and the rituals and even practicing them, them, them themselves, uh, two and a half times higher amongst leading innovators. And then this idea of creating psychological safety strongly or very strongly, we're seeing leading innovators embrace and embody that innovation culture fundamental uh, ahead of average companies. So Sean, that's what some of the data is starting to show around these cultural fundamentals and some stark differences between leading innovators and average innovators. And, and if I could add a little bit to this, um, one, you know, we show them separately, but you have to think about them in an integrated fashion. And the more integrated you, you, you think about them working together, the better. And the second, and I could imagine people might be on listening, go, wait, what about bottom-up innovation? This is all about top-down. Where's the bottom-up? And the reality is there is a role for bottom-up. Bottom-up innovation is very important. And we have lots of examples of organizations that can create a robust marketplace of ideas and, and, and entrepreneurship. The challenge becomes to become a great innovator is it hits the ceiling. Right. If you can't get the resource reallocation to grab some of those bottom up ideas and scale them into something meaningful and material, then the organization doesn't really pivot around a success model for how value gets created through innovation. And so the fear of stepping out overcomes 
the rewards of, of being an entrepreneur over time. And you just kind of tamp down the bottom up if the top down isn't working at the same time. So the best, more, more, most robust organizations are where you have a healthy bottom up and a really um, prescriptive top down that's doing a lot of the things that Alex was just walking us through. So we talked earlier about the fact that while the whole company needs to prioritize innovation, it's really not everyone's daily job. So how do you make sure that the folks who are driving the daily success of the business are actually seeing the drivers of innovation as an integral part of their organization and not just geniuses off building the next big thing? Absolutely. I'll comment and Eric, you should jump in here too. But I think we see innovation critically being important that you focus on an end-to-end model, right? From idea all the way through to full scale. And many folks actually hit a wall. There's a great cartoon of like a catapult um, of an idea coming from R&D at marketing, which is a brick wall, right? (laughs) Throwing the idea. Those kind of organizations usually fail at all of this scaling. They will let the flowers bloom. The flowers are actually exciting and interesting, but they never mature. So a couple of thoughts on what's helpful, and then Eric, you should jump in. One is actually having folks from the entire value chain be present in the innovation process throughout, whether they are part of an advisory board or whether they are actually part of the working teams is often critical to getting innovation to work end to end. I think the other piece that's also critically important is how people belong in their organizations. So if I find that I have the opportunity to rotate into the innovation center, but by the way, the rotation into a sales and marketing role to understand the customer at the front line is no less um, lauded or awarded or, or celebrated in the organization, you will find a really healthy culture of People who move in and out of these innovation roles move in and out of the roles that actually bring things to market. And the more interaction you have there, whether it's some kind of rotation program, secondments, uh, you know, or, or even just lunch and learns where you're bringing folks together, that actually has a big impact on the ability to scale. Yeah, um, you know, for, for something for everyone to think about: what is an innovation? An innovation at its simplest, simplest form is identify a valuable problem to solve. Use a technology to solve that problem and put it inside a business model that allows it to scale as, as quickly as possible to create value. If you sort of have that mental model in your, in your mind and think about your organization, whatever organization is, how easy or difficult is it for those pieces to come together end to end, as Laura said? And the end is, if you take your innovation team, I heard team mentioned, and you put it off to the side and disconnect it from the ability to, to, to influence either the customer, the consumer, the internal user, whatever the innovation, wherever that innovation is intended to go, then the likelihood that that team can put together those elements and have it have the impact that it's supposed to is very low. And that's the problem we see is innovation teams get set up to do prototyping and piloting or a one-off whatever. And they're not really part, they don't belong, right? As Laura said, they don't belong to the, the organization. They are the innovators and they almost get sequestered unintentionally and then ring-fenced and then separated. And that's what we encourage. You, you want to overcome the fear, make it part of the regular business system. And back to that resource allocation point, make it part of the engine that's driving 
the organization so it's not a one-off or it's not a thing on the side. Sure. I'd love to hear more about each of those fundamental cultural practices on commitment and belief. How do the best innovators get that out to the organization? Yeah, Sean, and something really profound that we found here is that words truly matter. When we look at the leading innovators in the world and we look at their values, we actually find that one in six of their values on average is all about innovation. When we look at all other companies, we only find that about one in 19 of their values is about innovation. And by values, we don't mean make sure you put innovation up on the wall. We mean authentically commit to it. So that's a really interesting difference that words matter, employees notice. And the other important part about belief is it's not one of a hundred beliefs. Innovation needs to be one of a few beliefs. That's another pattern we see amongst leading innovators. It's not 50 values. It's often not 10. It might be five and innovation features amongst those five. So if you're committed to innovation, make it a value and make it one of a few values. Another pattern that we see is that leading innovators connect those values to their actual mission, vision, and purpose. And so you'll see leading innovators often with more specific visions, like Laura described about going to the moon and back within a 10-year period. That's very specific. So we see average innovators commonly with a purpose like become a great restaurant chain. Whereas we see leading innovators with a purpose that might be really focused, for example, on becoming a net zero automaker. That's very specific. And what the message it sends is that we need innovation to achieve this purpose. And amongst average innovators, it's just not clear at all that innovation is required to achieve the purpose. So that's the first fundamental that we see. Hmm. Okay, got it. Um, on championing innovation, you mentioned storytelling earlier. Can you elaborate a little bit more on the role that storytelling plays in championing innovation? You can frame innovation as risky and negative, or you can frame it as an imperative and something that we have to do to stay relevant. That's something that leading innovators do. And commonly leading innovators, and especially CEOs, have a mantra around innovation. Like Laura described, it might be as simple as innovation is just making a series of mis-takes. In the case of a major leading high technology company, the CEO describes innovation and innovation's failure specifically as simply learning that something doesn't work. With a media company, I love their mantra around innovation. The leadership says that we do two things. We make originals and we make sequels. We make sequels because we don't want to go commercially bankrupt. And we make originals because we don't want to become creatively bankrupt. And so that mantra educates employees, reminds employees, saying it on repeat that, hey, it's both. It's driving the core and the business, but it's also living up to this value and a purpose we have. So that's championing. If we go ahead to signal and symbolize, and it's recognizing and using the power of symbols. 
And symbols can be something as simple as your intranet landing page. So as an employee, when you open your laptop and you go to the default homepage, is it your website, for example, or is it your competitors? And that's something really interesting that we've seen some leading innovators do. They want their employees to be looking outside of their company first. And so they have that regular reminder. The company intranet page is actually, or the default landing page is not their own intranet. It's a competitor's. What are other signals we see in the world? It's just where the leadership spends their time, where they show up. What conferences are they going to? What speaking engagements are they involved in? One research participant talked about uh, a competitor CEO, an airline CEO, showing up at the Las Vegas Consumer Electronics event and really lamenting the fact that their CEO would never do that, would never even consider it. And how much just that CEO of that competitor showing up at that event communicates to the rest of the organization that innovation is important and that thinking outside the industry silo is so important and thinking about the airline is so much more than just a company that flies people places. The last symbol that's really important are the actual decisions that leadership makes. And the head of strategy of a major video game company was saying that a symbol that the organization takes very seriously is the innovation budget, which was set at about a billion dollars. And that budget, when it goes down, employees take notice. And they know that that means that innovation is becoming less of a priority. And so this organization has learned from that misstep and is very mindful about what the actual funding decision that gets communicated to employees, what it symbolizes about innovation as, as a priority. That's great, Alex. And you also mentioned rituals. How are those different from symbols? And what kind of rituals do successful innovation leaders embrace? People like Steve Jobs were really well known for doing things like showing up at the call center and actually making calls to customers to understand their needs. What are the rituals? What are the routines that your leadership group are demonstrating, leading, and inculcating in the rest of the organization? And are you inviting others to participate in those rituals? Oftentimes, we see organizations say, be customer-centric. They set up training for employees to learn how to be more customer-centric. But as a leadership team, they don't participate in that training themselves or actually embrace or lead on those behaviors. So understanding where you're out of step with some of the behaviors you want your employees to embrace is really important. And then the last one, and perhaps the most important, is this idea, um, and Amy Edmondson talks about this widely, is this idea of psychological safety. It's not this idea of creating a safe space where there's no criticism. It's this idea of creating a space like Eric described, where there's humility, where there's respect, where there's honesty, where there's transparency, but where failure is destigmatized, where employees feel agency to ask questions, to learn and experiment. And that starts with the CEO and the top team and gets cascaded down into all levels of the organization. And that's something leading innovators are especially good at. Thanks so much. So now the big question, if your organization is lacking these fundamentals that you just took us through, where do you start? I think Eric, Laura, and I all have our own 
kind of favorite different ways that organizations can get started. Let me pick maybe the easiest one. Where do you show up as a leader? Where do you show up as a CEO? Is there somewhere that you can show up if you want more innovation in your organization? And that could be a speech that you give. It could be a, a partner that you talk to. It could be a message that you share in a newsletter to your employees. What's a way that you're just showing up in a different way that shows that doing things differently around here is accepted and actually desired? And Alex, let me add my favorite one, which is I love this idea of actually bringing the positive energy to the discussion, right? So we, we've heard of people talking about the first five, like the first five comments when someone throws out an idea, what do those have to be? And some, some folks have said, well, the first five have to be positive. Sometimes you worry then that they get fluffy and, you know, I, one of the ones I love is this MIB culture, right? We've seen this at a couple of our, our clients where they literally have an MIB framework, make it bigger, make it better. It is your job as an executive of this organization. And frankly, your job as a member of the team to actually take ideas. And yes, we're all good at tearing them down, but how do you make them bigger, make them better? That's actually a real skill and pointing it out it's also a real skill to actually be able to reward when a learning gets inculcated, right? So when we talk about fail fast, nobody wants to fail fast. I don't want to fail at all. But if you can create the environment where it's about learning and where we actually turn the tables on things and say, it's not that all, all comments need to be positive. It's that your job is to make this better, make it bigger, make it better. Laura, when you said MIB, and maybe it's just, you know, my generation, but I instantly went to Men in Black. Men in Black. That's right. That's and I was up. thinking of, you know what, but that might be another MIB tactic because you'll remember they had the the memory erasing device. That's right. I think they were called the neuralizer. Right? There you go. And I think that's another tool. You know, it's it, it, there's such fear of, of criticism and fear of feeling dumb. Um, that holds us back from sharing possibilities that we don't. And if you could have an environment where you can say something and if it turns out to, you know, not resonate with folks, well, we, we can just press that, that button on Sean's neuralizer. Um, so we can go back in time. So I'll add one more that crosses a couple of these, but I would say my favorite, one of my favorites is really challenging orthodoxies. One of the things that creates the fear is, as we've alluded to multiple times, is because there is a presumed way of working or a presumed belief system that operates where if you do it the way we know you do it, success, you get to be successful. And one of my favorite interventions is back when I, when I was actually uh, the CIO of a very large Korean organization, we challenged the notion of failure. And we challenged it in a very profound way by holding a full-blown Korean funeral where the CEO came, which would never happen, to the R&D center and with all the pomp and circumstance, buried an idea. We buried it and we celebrated its life and we celebrated its learning and we celebrated the fact that as an organization, we were stronger. That symbol and and challenge of the orthodoxy for those of you who are familiar with Korean typical Korean corporate cultures and the and the role of failure which is not accepted was so powerful 
and resonated for so far, far through the organization for, for months and months. And even to this day, people still tell the story. That's the power of taking an action as a leader and creating a symbol that really challenges what is at the heart of preventing innovation from happening. You don't necessarily have to go that far, but this was something that really just blew a hole in an orthodoxy that was dragging this particular organization down. Yeah, I'd imagine that funeral would have uh, would have been quite the uh, quite the spectacle, Eric. Thanks. Let me ask this final question: um, What aspect of this research are you most excited about, Laura? You want to start us off? Well, for me, it's that innovate or culture is often a squishy word, right? People will say, and I can't tell you how many times we get the question: Help us with our innovation culture. And the thing I love most about this research is that we actually have started to quantify and put real behaviors, actions, strategies behind how you actually build that fabric that is required to deliver innovation. So for me, it's the tangibility as well as really taking a subject that many people talk about and no one has actually been able to really put their arms around yet and and giving it some some real um, quantifiable and executable opportunities. That's great, Laura. Thanks. And, and Eric, what about you? You get the last word. It's always dangerous. I am so excited about this because I've had a long-held belief that behavioral economics is actually the critical unlock to helping innovation thrive in organizations. And it's not been explored. And this research is, I think, the first step in really linking economics, behaviors, quantification. And I think as we continue to push this forward, What do you do, whether it be nudge theories or other interventions that move organizations in a fundamentally different way that is not about creating an accelerator, putting a CVC up there and the rest of the playbook that we all know doesn't really work. So I'm I'm really excited about getting underneath what I think is the human side of innovation. And as we said, the fears that are preventing whether they're warranted or not from innovation happening at scale. Awesome. Laura, Alex, Eric. Again, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. This has been a really valuable conversation and also a lot of fun. Um, and hopefully the neuralizer won't be activated on anybody after they, they listen to the uh, podcast. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us today. We really hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com or you can share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player. Thank you to all of our listeners who've already rated and reviewed the podcast. We really appreciate your comments and feedback. Please keep them coming. And if you'd like to listen to additional episodes, you can access our entire library on your podcast player and on our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also find transcripts of more than 120 past episodes. Finally, if you'd like to receive automatic alerts on our latest insights on strategy and corporate finance, you can sign up on our Practice Insights page on mckinsey.com SCF. Follow us on Twitter at MCKStrategy or connect with us on LinkedIn by visiting the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.